Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's adventure, we are going to head on over to Manistee County and look at some of the history of the early founding of the city of Manistee and how it all began and also some of the early industry of that fascinating community on the shores of Lake Michigan. So come along and join me. I'm going to be reading from today is the history of Manistee County, Michigan, with illustrations and biographical sketches. And it was put together by a Chicago company called H.R. Page and Company in 1882. And it is, like many of these books of the time, a collection of biographical sketches on some of the people and the prominent people of the time, as well as a lot of facts and details about early parts of whatever region they're talking about. And this one happens to be about Manistee County and Manistee, Michigan. So this should be kind of interesting. But rather than delve into a lot of the county's history, I want to focus mainly on the city of Manistee. Now, remember that this was written in the late 1800s, and it it reads, The city of Manistee is the county seat and the only city of Manistee County. It's located on the east shore of Lake Michigan, and it is about 175 miles distant from Chicago. The city extends east along the Manistee River and south along the west shore of Lake Manistee. The banks of the river on the south side are of sand and about 10 feet high. From this bank, a sand plain from 10 to 20 rods in width extends back to clay banks, which rise abruptly from 10 to 30 feet to a plain which stretches away to the south. This plain has a clay soil and affords a charming site for dwellings. It is here that the elegant residences for which Manistee is so justly noted, are situated. Twenty years ago, the population of the entire county was less than 1,000. A rude hamlet of shanties and two or three mills were all that relieved the loneliness and dreariness of this remote region. From this obscurity, a city struggled to a promising stature, only to be turned to ashes in a night. Then a hurrying Hither and thither of determined men and women, builders bent to their work, streets are outlined, blocks follow each other, homes are built, ten years hurry by, and we stand in the midst of a city of 9,000 inhabitants, noted for their morality and culture, while everywhere are the unmistakable evidences of real prosperity and wealth. The early history of this region has already been gathered with a skillful hand. In the centennial year 1876, General Byron M. Cutchian was chosen to deliver a historical address at the 4th of July celebration, which was one of the most notable events in the history of the county. The address shows that the historian of that occasion was widely chosen. We are indebted to the author for permission to use this manuscript. The following is the address referred to, except some portions as to relate to subjects which are treated 
in their proper order. Now, what follows is a very colorful and historical speech starting all the way with the U.S. Congress and all the way to the founding of Michigan and the early histories of the state and so forth. And I'm not going to go into the details of what he wrote, but it was just kind of a very fascinating uh, tribute to the early days of Manistee and how they actually grew to a city of 9,000 in, in less than a few decades, which was quite something for that time period. But he does mention the origin of the word Manistee, which is derived from a Native American word for that was assigned to the beautiful river and lake adjacent to the new community. Now, the meaning of that name of Manistee, there had been a diversity of opinion. One of the Michigan historians said the meaning meant the river with islands in the Native American tongue, which they described as Chippewa, but was probably more like uh, Ojibwe or Potawatomi. There was another historian that signified the word meant the spirit of the woods. Now, which definition was true, he wasn't sure as he presented in this speech that he gave on the 4th of July that year. Now, one of the early events that happened in the city of Manistee was a fire in 1864. And it's described as, while the war was still raging, Manistee was visited by her first great fire, which came out of the woods just south of where Jack's Boiler Shop now stands, and burned through the river, destroying the old McVicker and Company Mill, belonging to D.L. Filer, adjoining the Bedford's Dock and many other structures. On the same day, the fire caught in the upper part of the village in the vicinity of the Bachelor Mill and the Old County Jail was burned to the ground. The original jail was a blockhouse built of square timbers, ironed together. The county did not rebuild on the old site, but sold that site and acquired the present site in 1866. So that was the reference that was made in this collection of information on the first fire that had any kind of devastating effect on the town. Uh, 1865 to 1869, this was the close of the war, and home came the return of veterans and a great number of the soldiers who started life anew and sought settlement in the new country where land was cheap and large interests to develop. The period from that year, 1865 to 1869, was barked by a very special growth, which became a rapid growth of development than any previous period. Large numbers of homesteaders came into the area and the splendid forests of northern Manistee began to resound with the sturdy blow of their axes. Of course, following this, there was a lot of timber interests, a lot of new milling, and farms began to appear in the forest as they were carved out by the axe. The river and harbor were improved, the piers were then commenced, and the swing bridge was constructed, and many other companies were organized, including the Union School was opened and churches were started. And by the spring year of 1869, Manistee had blossomed out into a full-blown city with a very special character, and it had a mayor and a common council and four wards. Now, among the early businesses of those days was the Canfield Store, 
Uh, there was a post office. There was a general store where Dr. Ellis res- resided and operated his business. There was Ramsdale and Benedict who occupied a law office in that area. Next door was the Bullis Law Office and the only newspaper in town, as well as the probate's office. There was also the American House, which was a hotel run by John Bennett, and it was the only hotel in Manistee. There was a meat market uh, behind Dr. Ellis's barn, and there were news and a cigar stand in a small building opposite this location. And then there was a Green's steam mill that stood just above the bridge and a row of wooden buildings that was going up in that vicinity. There was another mill uh, known as Tyson and Company, which was a red building. And there were several other mills established along the river, as well as the Storenotch Lumber Company Mill that was built between 1869 and 1870. By 1871, the number of mills in the area had increased to 21. And the historian who wrote this described those times as being very flush. The lumber brought high prices, the influx of population was immense, and the demand for labor was correspondingly great. 300 buildings of various grades went up in Manistee in the year 1867 alone. Population doubled twice between 1866 and 1870, and this prosperity continued almost unabated until the Great Fire of 1871. The first serious drawback was the Fire of 1869. Christmas night that year, the Tyson House, the finest hotel Manistee ever had, was burned and all the rest of the block from what was then the Citibank and the Tyson Sweet Star. The loss was about $100,000. The place of the Tyson House was never rebuilt, and the fire was a serious and permanent drawback to the prosperity of the new city. And that was in 1871. Now, one of the other great movements, as happening all over Michigan during that time, but this happened in 1874, and it was the Great Temperance Movement. And this event began with a big gathering that lasted 35 nights in the largest assembly room in the city, where people were packed into suffocation, and there was such an eager throng full of a strange and wonderful enthusiasm that more than 2,000 people signed the Temperance Pledge, and many hundreds of them still kept it, even in later years. So that was a very high temperance community during that time period. So it doesn't sound like anybody was starting any pubs and bars at that time in Manistee. Some of the early churches in 1859, the first evangelical church organized for the Methodists was formed, and they began to have worship in their own building by 1869. 1862 commenced the erection of another church run by a Reverend Mr. Steele. And then in 1861, the Catholics first began to have their regular worship with a priest by the name of Father Tucker in one of the local hotels. And then in 1862, the Congregational Church was organized, and there were other ones that... um, He doesn't really define the faith, so there apparently was several other smaller wooden churches over the years that were formed, Um, but the denomination was not very clear in this write-up. So moving forward in the history, the city became incorporated as an official city in Michigan in 1869. In January 
1869, the community had a meeting with their mayor and their wards, and they voted to submit a city charter to the state of Michigan. And so the matter was taken to Lansing, and the charter was granted by the state legislature the first week of March of that year. So it was a process that took about two months. And when it returned, the first mayor that was elected under the new city was George W. Robinson with the majority vote. And there were aldermans of the various wards after that, which had now expanded to roughly a dozen wards in the area is what it appears like. So uh, the city had grown considerably when it became a chartered city in the state of Michigan. And here's where it gets interesting because this is 1869. Remember the early temperance movement of 1864. What I found compelling was that on the March 7th, 1870 treasurer's report, this is one year after the city charter was approved, the receipts for the city totaled about $8,494 of different things. And among those receipts was saloon licenses And that was about half of the budget. $4,400 was brought in by the city in saloon licenses. Compare that to the $205 in licenses for hotel, $160 for billiard licenses. So in order to sell alcohol in the city of Manistee, you had to pay dearly at that time period. The second highest item on the entire list for revenue was $1,779, and that was a highway tax. So that's kind of interesting that they were heavily charging anybody who opened up a saloon and wanted to serve alcohol. Probably that whole temperance movement had an effect on that. Now, as many communities formed, they began having their first newspapers, and the first newspaper formed in Manistee was in December of 1864, and it was the Manistee Gazette. And it was organized by a man named T.J. Ramsdale, and he hired a young man named Robert Rice to be the one who did most of the work in putting the newspaper together. And the first paper was more of a modest appearance of only five columns, and it was probably a single sheet, maybe front and back, and that was the first edition of the Manistee Gazette in that county. And then in later years, they moved into a framed building in 1866. And then in 1867, Mr. Rice found his health failing, and he took on a partner. And then on uh, January 1868, he sold the office to S.W. Fowler, who was from Jackson, and changed the name of the paper to the Manistee Times and enlarged it to six columns. And sadly, Mr. Rice died at the residence of T.J. Ramsdell on February 12, 1868, at the age of just 23 years old. And they didn't describe what caused his death, other than it was some form of an illness. So likely during that time, it was tuberculosis. And then in 1869, another paper was started, and it was called the Tribune. And it was edited for a short time by a man named George Clayton of Ludington. And then it was taken over by John Rastell. And then in 1871, Mr. Fowler, who had taken over the Times from Mr. Rice before he passed away, sold the newspaper to Richard Hoffman. 
and he changed the name of the paper to the Standard. And it's interesting that during those times, the papers, well, I guess you could probably say the same thing happens in these times, but the newspapers had a political tone and the early papers were Republican papers. When it sold the last time, when it became from the Times to the Standard, it was turned into a Democrat uh, Party paper, um, which was pretty common. They would flip back and forth uh, between either the Whig Party and the Democrat parties early on. And then after the Civil War, it was the Republican and the Democrat Party. There was no longer really any Whig influence around anymore. Interesting to see that the newspapers um, would actually change their political theme as they sold their papers to different owners. And I wonder what that, that impact had on their readership. And there were two other parties during that time, the Greenback Party, which had a brief existence, and then there was an independent party during that time period. And they all had papers in the town of Manistee during that period. Now, one of the significant developments in the city of Manistee was the Manistee River Improvement Company. Prior to 1870, no logs had been put into the Manistee River east of the county line. The river was obstructed by a great number of ancient jams of logs, many of them of immense size and hundreds of years old. The consequence was that all of the vast amount of pine upon the headwaters of the Manistee were comparatively valueless because there was no way of getting it down to where it could be manufactured into lumber. So the work of removing these jams became too great to be undertaken by a single individual or as a private enterprise, and it was therefore decided to organize a river improvement company. So on March 5th, 1870, George Robinson, uh, D.D. Ruggles, William Wheeler, and several other people agreed to organize a company under the provisions of a statute for the purpose of clearing the river and improving navigation from the east line of Manistee County to the headwaters of the river so as to make it uh, practical for running logs, and navigation of all kinds of watercraft. So by March 16th, another meeting was held and articles of association were adopted and signed and agreed to, and there was a capital stock of $100,000 divided into shares of $100 each, which was organized, and the term of existence of the company was to be 30 years, and they started charging tolls on the river once they organized and cleared out these huge log jams, and that was how they reimbursed the stockholders uh, of the company. So that was how they set up this company originally. They sold these shares of stock in the River Improvement Company. This funded the work to be done, and then as the river was opened, they started, which was by 1872, only a few years after the organization of the company, they were able to start giving revenue to the stockholders of the original stock. By 1878, they were involved in litigation on their right to collect tolls, and that lasted until about 1880, and the result of the litigation was favorable to the company, and it put an end to anybody challenging their right to charge tolls on the river. So that's kind of an interesting history of the early city of Manistee and how they solved a major problem to get lumber down to the mills and finance the work that needed to be done to solve a problem. But it's interesting that by 1873, Manistee had this 
navigatable waterway that they had not had before prior to the work being done by that organization. And it began to change the landscape of the city. They put in a new bridge, which was a new iron bridge, uh, rebuilt after the fire of 1871 that had been destroyed. And it was uh, completed at a cost of about $18,000. And it was written to be far superior to the wooden structure that had been destroyed in the Great Fire of 1871. The city was also getting connected by steamer lines from Chicago and Milwaukee, and they had tri-weekly lines directly to Milwaukee, and two steamers daily connected with cars at Pentwater. So they went, you could connect to the railroad um, by taking a steamer from Manistee. There was also three lines of telegraph running into Manistee, one from the south to Muskegon and Grand Rapids, and one north to Frankport, which established a communication network that had not previously existed. And then in the banking business, there appears to have been many extensive brokerages in Manistee between the years 1860 and 1879. The pioneers of the business were T.J. Ramsdale and E.G. Filer, who opened a broker's office in 1860. Uh, 1868 was the Vanderpool and Field brokerage office that was established. And I covered a little bit of history on the Vanderpool murder trial that uh, was a big event that drew a lot of attention to Manistee during those years of the trial going on. It was a terrible tragedy, but it gave... Uh, Manistee, a bit of widespread celebrity across the state, uh, which it was a previously unknown community at the time. So there was that benefit. Uh, another bank was the Bank of Charles Secor and Company that was started in 1869. And the first incorporated bank was the State Bank of Manistee, which was incorporated in February of 1879. A lot of the same players in the banking industry seemed to be involved uh, Dempsey, Ramsdale, Dunham were common names moving around these institutions. And the first U.S. lifeboat station was established at Manistee in the fall of 1879. And the first year it was in charge by a man named James Morgan. And he stayed there for two years and resigned in 1881 and was succeeded by Captain Henry Finch, who remained in charge up to the time of this writing in the late 1800s. Some of the public buildings that were built in that time period, 1866 was the Central School Building. The courthouse was finished in 1878. And then there was a hall called the Temperance Hall that uh, was established following the Temperance Movement, named in honor of the Temperance Movement of 1874. Uh, there was also another hall called Union Hall. There was also a library established adjacent to the high school, but it was also made available to the general public every Saturday afternoon from 1 to 4 so that the entire community could benefit from the culture and refinement available in the 2,000 volumes within its walls. And there were two tug lines that were established along the rivers and lakes near Manistee during this time period. There was the Canfield Tug Line, which had been begun with a capital of an investment of $75,000. And they existed beginning in 1866 with three tugs in their company uh, pulling pallets and ships along the river. 
And then there was another company called the Dempsey Tug Line, which was started in 1880. And there's a lot of clubs and organizations that were involved in these communities. And those were very common in communities across Michigan during those years. Uh, It's interesting to read down the list of some of them. I'm not going to read you all of them because it's quite an extensive list. But as to be expected, there is a Women's Christian Temperance Union and another Women's Temperance Association. But some of the other interesting organizations was the Scandinavian Society, which was organized in 1872. The German Mutual Aid Society, organized in 1871. The Knights of Honor Lodge, organized in 1877. And of course, the Masonic Lodge, which is a common type of lodge in many, many communities. But let's uh, close out by talking about the Manistee Railroad. Until December 1881, the screech of the iron horse never awoke the echoes in the vicinity of the city of Manistee. The manufacture of lumber was the industry of overshadowing importance, and the great highways of Lake Michigan afforded ample facilities for the transportation of that product. Prior to that, they were using most exclusively the waterways for their transportation system. So if somebody wanted to leave the area of Manistee, they took a steamboat to another port city, maybe Chicago, or they went on down the coast to Pentwater and connected with the railroad there. So there wasn't a railroad line that went into Manistee until December of 1881. And at that time, they opened the Manistee branch of the Flint and Pear Marquette Road and it began a continuing service up to Ludington and Manistee Junction, and even had stops in a small community called Lincoln, along with many other places. So that was a major change for the city of Manistee, and of course it connected them with a lot of inland part of the state of Michigan, which they previously didn't have that connection before, unless somebody was coming down the river. So very fascinating history of the early establishment of Manistee and a lot of interesting stories about the events, the the solving of the problem of the log jam with that company was fascinating, the early temperance movements and so many of the other interesting stories and events like the great fires of 1864 and 1871 that had profound impacts on the city or setbacks that they had to re-emerge from. So the city's had a very interesting history and it certainly obviously looks different today than it did back in the 1800s, but I thought I would share this history with you today. Uh, Once again, this comes from the history of Manistee County, which was published by Chicago H.R. Page and Company in 1882. But that's going to conclude today's journey through history. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave a rating or review on whatever app that you have been listening on today. And if you would like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. You can send me a message through that website. You can also contact me on social media through my Facebook page, Michael Delaware Author. And if you haven't already done so, please follow me there. And you can reach out and message me now on Instagram at Michigan History Guy. And I do get people messaging me there as well these days. And don't forget, if you'd like to get a copy of my new book, Victorian Southwest Michigan True Crime, which is coming out on March 11th, 
You can order a copy through my website at michaeldelaware.com. And you can also look on the website there for my upcoming calendar of events where I will be speaking about the different stories from this collection of true crime stories that happened here in Southwest Michigan. And I got to tell you, I'm pretty excited about working on some of these PowerPoints and presentations that I've been doing for the last several months, getting prepared for this tour. And it's going to be really interesting to be able to show people some of the visuals that go along with the stories because not as many illustrations and photos were able to make it into this book as I wanted. So I'll be able to give you more of a visual and uh, show you some talking points on some of these stories where the information is available and to make it more interesting and uh, put you in more into the story. So if you come to one of those events where I'm going to be speaking, uh, you'll be able to see some of those presentations. And once again, that's on michaeldelaware.com. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening. Thank you.